This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Welcome to the very first episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy. And I'm Tony. And this is our inaugural episode. I think we're going to start off by introducing ourselves. Um, I've been herping, and we'll tell you what that means at some point in future episodes, but I've been herping for 11 years in Philadelphia. For a while, I had a Philly herping blog that was wildly popular in the urban herping community. I wrote articles for Grid, a local environmental magazine from 2007 until just this year when I gave it up to work on this podcast. Um, And I have a day job in totally unrelated bureaucracy. Tony? I'm an avid birder. I've been birding since I was nine years old. And I'm a native Philadelphian. So I started birding in the parks in Philly. Uh, Currently, I'm a graduate student at St. Joseph's University. I'm getting my master's studying shrubs and invertebrate populations on shrubs kind of through the lens of bird food. Probably by the time this comes out, I will have my master's, but remains to be seen when I get done my thesis. Before that, I did a fair amount of field research in the Canadian Arctic, Brazil, uh, New York City, actually, in the West Nile virus bird study, and the Canadian Arctic. I led a, a tour to Brazil, which I thought I was going to keep doing until I went back to grad school. Uh, I used to be the singer in a punk band called Rambo, which toured all over uh, Europe, uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, and of course uh, in the U.S. and Canada. And as an avid birder, I got to bird uh, throughout the tours, and a lot of that was in urban settings, as you can imagine. And I'll say, before I even met Tony, I saw Tony in a video about Tony birding in Hong Kong. And this is back when he had the dreads. Um, so I knew Tony for these for, from his, his Asian punk rock touring birding life before I even met him. Yeah, so, you know, Billy and I both share a passion for urban wildlife, as you can see. Yes, and we're both, uh, you know, we're, we're, I think we both grew up watching, watching, like, wildlife documentaries and into getting out there and getting into stuff. Um, But we live in a big city, and just because we're in a big city, we don't stop observing, enjoying, learning about the wildlife here. And wildlife, for our purposes, includes other kingdoms besides animals. Hey, what about archaea and bacteria? We'll get to those, but we got to get a better microscope first. <laughs> um, and that's what we want to share in the podcast. We might get deep, but this is not an academic podcast. Uh, we want to keep the wow about wildlife, even if we're touching on some more serious themes, um, which will come out. But we got to be what we want to keep. We want to keep that amazement, you know, like. We're all kids inside who, who think this stuff is really cool. I want to keep that going on. Yeah, I work, I guess I didn't mention this, I work as an environmental educator um, for the Philadelphia Water Department. And one of the things that I feel strongly about is that I feel like we, we look at environmental education as a way to modify behavior. And often, you know, we look at children as we're like, okay, hopefully someday they'll be, if we teach them now, they'll be better stewards in the environment, they'll recycle, they'll invest in watershed health. But unfortunately, I feel like we depress kids too much and even adults about how bad things are. 
and we don't get people excited about how wonderful nature is and wildlife is and get people, you know, give them a reason to fight for things, you know, not just dwell on the bleak. So there's like, not to, to spin off into too serious a topic, but there's also the angle there that like, you know, you do a disservice to people when you don't give them a window into how wonderful wildlife and nature is or are. I mean, it's that people are not just instruments to improve environmental policy, but you know, we're, we're all people who can, who can really enjoy and get off on this stuff. Um, and if we're not, and you know, it's because we weren't turned on to it, then, then that's wrong. You know, we should be getting into wildlife and getting psyched about it. Um, just because it's something that's really cool. And yeah, and we're both excited about wildlife that we can see by taking public transit, by riding our bicycles, by taking a walk. Often people get in their cars and they drive out to a wildlife refuge or a park or they fly somewhere to an eco lodge. But we have, in our, we're blessed to live in a city with the largest municipally owned park system. Also a city that has the first uh, wildlife refuge within city limits in America. So we get to see you know fantastic wildlife all the time where we live and we know that other cities have a similar uh, situation plus there's also wildlife that doesn't just in parks it, it could be in abandoned lots or it could be nesting on a ledge on a on a bridge or a building what what city would that be Tony? philadelphia we live in philadelphia which is the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection as our mayor says <laughs> yeah so philly might get a disproportionate amount of attention um but it's where we live and we can, you know, if we have ideas about a certain topic, we can often answer that here unless it's an animal, you know, or plant that doesn't occur here at all. We're, we're also really interested in hearing people's experience in other cities. And, uh, you know, if you want to chime in, um, you can give us feedback at our email address. Eventually you can call in, I'm sure. We'll make that happen. We'll make that happen at some point. Yeah. And hopefully sometimes we can come to you. Uh, we get out a fair amount, you know, I travel extensively so does Billy uh, and you'll hear some of those stories as we go um, and uh, uh, again that's urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com and we'll read everything even if we can't write back to you and so now on our first episode uh, we picked two topics that totally blew our minds and I'll, I'll say you know we've been we sort of got ready for this by recording a whole bunch of pieces interviews some stuff like adventures in the outdoors um, the two stories we're working on uh, for today are Humpback whales, which live right off of New York City. Uh, in, the, in the harbor, right? Uh, not in the harbor, actually. Right on the other side of, um, of the Verrazano Narrows. So they're, but they're still, if you're, you're working from Brooklyn or Staten Island, they're like right offshore. Uh, and um, reticulated pythons in Bangkok. Uh, and both of these are about really big animals. Big animals. I mean, whales don't get much bigger than that. Um, and reticulated pythons are the longest snake in the world. Uh, so these are really big, really big pythons. Um, and these, both of these animals, uh, or both these kinds of animals, use water systems to get close to people. And closer than urbanites, you know, most urbanites walking around might really contemplate. Um, with the pythons in Bangkok and also in other Southeast Asian cities, um, they'll live in sort of the corridors around canals that drain the cities. Uh, and then whales will just live right offshore um, of the port city. It's the oceans right over there, um, just like they do in New York City. And so with that, let's start off by listening to Michael Hakim talk about uh, Bangkok pythons 
And I'll say a little bit about Michael. Michael is another amateur herper just like me uh, who has traveled uh, the world. Now he's in India um, for his day job, basically social work, uh, but hasn't stopped herping and put together a great website called Bangkok Herps. And we reached him via Skype. My name is Jonathan Haim. I'm the author and administrator of Bangkok Herps which is a field guide to the reptiles and amphibians that live in Bangkok, Thailand. How did you come to do a, a website about the herps of Bangkok? Well, I've had a love of reptiles and amphibians since I was a young child. My father's actually a zookeeper, and so I grew up around animals my whole life. And um, in North America, uh, in Oregon and California, where I lived, I did a lot of amateur research on reptiles and amphibians in association with the uh, North American Field Herping Association. Right. And so in 2010, uh, for work, I moved to Thailand to do some uh, social work among kids who beg in the red light district. But at the same time, I still had this love of animals and started finding animals and looking for animals, especially snakes and lizards and frogs and turtles, um, everywhere I went in Bangkok. And uh, every once in a while, I had a trouble identifying something because there wasn't really any good field guides published especially for the frogs in the area. And so I began uh, sort of accumulating a lot of information from various sources about what kinds of reptiles and amphibians lived in Bangkok and put together my own pictures and pictures that I drew from a lot of uh, collaborators and uh, created a field guide to every single species that can be found in the city. In particular, you know, on, on your website and other places in other Southeast Asian cities, I've, I've, I've read or, or heard about articulated pythons uh, uh, living in um, canals or sewers in, in urban settings. And so was, you know, if you could tell us what reticulated pythons are, what you know about what they might do in, in a non-urban, sort of what we think of as a more natural setting. Um, the large adults get to at least uh, 23 to 25 feet long. There's some very old reports of reticulated pythons that are possibly over 30 feet long. Um, they're called reticulated because it's Latin for net-like, and they have a sort of a net weave pattern of uh, brown and black and yellow on their skin that's really beautiful. Uh, in the wild, they're naturally found in Southeast Asia, uh, through most of the islands in Indonesia and the Philippines, uh, across the mainland of uh, Vietnam and Thailand, going all the way to the edge of uh, Bangladesh and India. They're mostly found in forest habitats and especially near water. You can find them in streams or rivers or lakes are very often in the trees uh, associated with those rivers and lakes. They're found in other habitats too, but usually fairly close to the forest, fairly close to trees. Since they're actually pretty slender, even though they're very long, they're primarily rat and rodent eaters until they get to quite some large size. So even a 10 or 12 foot python is going to mostly be eating rats and arboreal rodents and different things you might think are small for a snake that's so big. Once they get really big, once you start getting over 14, 15 feet long, they'll start to eat things like monkeys, pigs, uh, small carnivores like jackals and civets, and um, some of those larger prey. Neat. So, um, so, so now we hear a little bit about their, their natural history. Describe what you know about or what you've heard about the extent of articulated pythons in, in Bangkok. Does, you know, are these things that every now and then someone finds one and it's a notable event? Are they routine? Um, you know, how, how common or, or how uh, prevalent are they? Yeah, I've talked to quite a few people about their reticulated python experiences. 
um, including some people who've been in the city for quite a long time. And I'd say that seeing a reticulated python is routinely rare. Okay. Um, it's something that happens regularly in the city. It can happen pretty much anywhere in the city. And it's the sort of thing that'll really draw a crowd um, if it's a place where more than one person can see it. But it's not something that's necessarily going to make the news or anything. Okay. Um, if you if you live in Bangkok for a long time, you'll have a pretty decent chance of seeing at least one. I actually was lucky enough to see one in just my second month that I was there. Neat. Well, how did that happen? I uh, was living near the Onut uh, metro station, which is uh, pr pretty close to the center of the city, maybe halfway between the center and the outskirts, and had noticed this canal passing about half a kilometer from where I lived and had really been interested in these stories of pythons and the canals and such and wanted to really check it out and see if I could find anything. So I told my wife and a couple of her friends that I wanted to go for a walk, and the four of us took a walk alongside the canal. And we climbed down till we were in the walkway next to the canal and we're walking along it and really hadn't gone very far at all. Uh, when my wife said to me, John, there's a really cool snake in the tree. <laughs> I've been sort of, uh, I've been scanning the ground, looking at the, looking at the forest floor around the roots of the trees and such, trying to see if there's anything in there. And instead up above my head, about eight feet in the tree was this little juvenile reticulated python just curled up on a tree branch as beautiful as could be. Neat. And so just uh, set the picture, I guess, with the canal. In Bangkok, canals vary quite a bit, but this is actually a pretty huge canal. I'm speaking something maybe 70 or 80 feet across. Oh, wow. So it's like a, it's like a I mean, it would, it would be like a, uh, a river, basically. Yeah. Or, or a large creek or something. Okay. Yeah. It's, this is quite a large canal here. Do they have concrete and, uh, walls or, or dirt or what, how do yes. they build them? So it's concrete walled. Um, very, very strong foundations, and there's a walkway going down along either side of it with the canal cutting underneath that walkway a little bit. So there's actually a place where um, you could be underneath the concrete and still um, not inside the water but also not exposed to the outside environment. So I think that might also be a place where the pythons would like to hide. Okay. And cool. then um, on the other side of the walkway from the canal, there's just some – some yards, some lots, that sort of thing, with occasional fairly large trees uh, growing here and there. And one of those trees had its branches hanging over the walkway and out over the canal, and the snake was basically directly above the walkway. Neat. One of the other experiences I've heard that seems likely true, they're, they're very often seen either on the edge of a canal or, or fairly close to one. Um, they're also seen in close to wetlands, uh, maybe sort of swampy, empty lots or parks in places. And um, usually they're either spotted traveling from one place to another or curled up in a tree like I saw. Okay. Um, but really the most, the most common way people see them is because the python's just eaten something. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I've got pictures of, of one such sighting actually very close to where I saw mine, um, near the Onut uh, metro station. And it's a python sitting there near the metro station with a great big lump in it, yeah. which obviously is a little less mobile, and then more people are going to have a chance to see it. But on my uh, Bangkok Herps website, a lot of people send me their own observations of pythons, and I've been sent pictures of pythons eating chickens, pythons eating ducks, pythons eating cats, pythons eating dogs, um, it seems that a lot of these sort of interactions with humans come because the pythons have come into um, somebody's yard 
and uh, picked off some of the domestic animals there. Got it, got it. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I I would assume canals are like like sort of the either stormwater drainage systems or sewers here. Then there's probably a lot of rats in them also, right? Yes. The the interactions that we see are the interactions with domestic animals because that's where the people are. Yeah. And that's also quite a large prey item, so that takes a long time for the python to eat, and it's going to make it a little less mobile afterwards. But my assumption would be that rats would be the primary prey item inside the city. Neat. Um, Bangkok doesn't doesn't lack for rats for sure. <laughs> In fact, we neither does Philadelphia, so who knows? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, if we if we could find a python that could withstand consistently withstand temperatures in the 50s then they do just great in our storm sewer system i can imagine how it would go if you know if 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 people saw a python in in philadelphia you know you'd have lots of people lots of police with guns ready to you know they'd call in sort of the artillery um what would how do people react when they actually find them in 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 places like where they actually occur like in bangkok yeah, I found the the attitude of the average Bangkok citizen towards uh, snakes to be pretty interesting. Um, I think it is partially related to sort of the Buddhist background in Bangkok. Okay. But there's um, a much more live and let live attitude towards snakes and other wildlife than I've seen in, in many other places. I've heard it now about two dozen different interactions between people and pythons in Bangkok, and I've yet to hear of a single interaction where the person killed the snake. Uh, generally what happens is they call a snake catcher. There's a couple private individuals who do that, or the fire department actually does it very, very regularly. Um, I think the fire department has dozens of python calls a year. And uh, they come and they catch the snake, and they either turn it into the Red Cross snake farm that's in town, or they release it out in the wild outside of the city. Um, other times they just sort of, if it's a smaller group of people, they often just sort of, let it go or go away from it. Huh. Neat. So uh, I think that, that sort of gets me to the end of what I was planning on asking you. I want to say thank you very, very much. And, you know, really, really good luck in everything you're doing. And have a good evening. Okay, you too. It's funny he mentions the firefighters responding to Python calls. Uh, my father was a Philadelphia firefighter for uh, 35, 30, almost 36 years, and uh, he never had to respond to any Python calls. But believe it or not, he actually did, on a couple of occasions, get called to get cats out of trees. Which Pythons would have done for him if we had them. But anyway, um, I, <laughs> we were listening to that and thinking about um, how we've developed the theme in the show about outdoor cats or feral cats uh, and the things that eat them, um, as well as the things they eat. Uh, and so there's the we'll we'll get yeah. to other things later in the series. Yeah, we have an episode uh, interview coming up about cats in the wild, cat tracking. We got cat tracking. We got coyotes, which is sort of like a cat predator. Yeah. Topic. Um, so yeah, cats. And uh, don't get me wrong. You know, I'm a birder, and I am a very upset about the the extreme number of birds taken by cats. And but they do take way more mammals and reptiles and amphibians than they do birds, which. Doesn't get enough attention, but I am a cat owner. Right, establish your cred here. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I, I have Lola, um, and she is a wonderful, um, meek little, long-haired tortoiseshell that is an absolute slaughter of mice. Because I live in West Philly in a big house, and we have mice. Does Lola go outside? She does not. There you go. All right. So next up, we got Paul, who's going to talk about Gotham Whale, 
uh, and just the biggest, I mean, they're not blue whales, but still, you know, as an overall group of animals, the biggest animals on earth uh, living right next to the biggest city in the United States. Paul's effort, Gotham Whale, they don't always, in, in their observations, are not of particular individuals necessarily, but in some cases they can ID particular whales based on fluke shapes and scars. And then these observations, they integrate with other observations from elsewhere in the whale's range to paint a picture of individual whales' travels. Um, they've been seeing increases in whales, just in observations of whales from every year, uh, basically a doubling um, from year to year since they started, going from three in 2011, uh, 15 in 2012, 33 in 2013, and in 2014 they had something like 78 sightings. Um, they've also seen increases in seal populations, uh, looking at harbor seals, but also some gray seals mixed in there too. And uh, Paul had commented on how like when he was working in Boston, uh, you might notice the guy doesn't sound like he's from New York, but when he was working in Boston and he worked at the New England Aquarium, um, that they saw seals expand the range into Massachusetts then, um, and then, uh, you know, so that now they're, I guess by the time he left Boston, they were living um, in New England waters year round, not just wintering there. And they're seeing increasing seal numbers wintering in New York as well. I see them in Jersey. And we see whales and sea seals. I'm sorry. Yeah, harbor seals. Harbor seals in Jersey. Pretty far south in Jersey. And then gray seals working their way down, I guess. Um, and also he commented that they, they see a lot of dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, as well as common dolphins. The whales that we see are humpback whales. Okay. Which is kind of neat because they are the, the most uh, acrobatic and I would say the most spectacular of the whales. Thick uh, <clears throat> behaviors like lunge feeding and uh, they will breach completely out of the water quite frequently. So uh, their acrobatics are really remarkable. I think there's something primal in discovering animal life. I mean, when we're out on the boat and we don't know where the whales are, we have no electronics that are able to say, well, the whale is right here at this point. And so we have to find them just the way the old whalers did. And there's such a, a sense of excitement when all of a sudden, up comes the whale out of, out of the water. My name is Paul Seaswerder. I'm the uh, director of Gotham Whale. It's an outgrowth of an um, activity that I was conducting when I used to be at the uh, New York Aquarium and would count harbor seals. We did that on the model of uh, the Christmas bird count that was designed by the Audubon Society way back in 1900. So um, I was doing that, and then I retired. And I said, well, this is a kind of an interesting thing to do. And I asked the aquarium if they would want to sponsor that, and they said, well, we have other activities. But you never want to suggest something unless you're willing to do it yourself. Exactly. And <laughs> actually, I was willing to do it myself, and so I pretty much went out on my own to um, begin the project uh, that has evolved into Gotham Whale. And so we were counting seals just like once a year, and then I connected with a um, a commercial boat, and they thought that maybe we could run some uh, seal-watching tours during the wintertime when seals come down to um, the New York area. So we did that for a couple of years, and that was marginally successful. And then we started getting reports about 
uh, whales being in the area. And so the uh, operators of the boat, they said, let's see if we could do it with uh, whale watching. Um, and we went out in 2011 and began our whale adventure cruises. In 2011, it was somewhat of an adventure to see whether or not we would see whales. And But we were able to see enough whales and dolphins to keep the customers happy. And so we've been um, building on that and building on the fact that more and more whales are coming in every year. And so this past season, we've been um, just uh, remarkably... I won't say inundated with whales, but um, the whales have increased uh, phenomenal. It's quite well known that they they come up north in the summertime to feed, and then they go back down to the warmest waters to breed and give birth um, <clears throat> down in the Caribbean. So that's quite well established. Here in New York, I think we are beginning to see a new feeding ground. Uh, the feeding grounds up in Massachusetts and Maine have been, uh, again, well established for many years. And off Stellweg and Bank, uh, the areas of their feeding grounds are quite well known. But we think it's kind of exciting that they're coming here to New York City um, to get some good cuisine down here. <laughs> so uh, what is happening around New York City, you think, that that's giving them more to eat? Well, I think it's a it's a fabulous success story because um, as I don't know if people are familiar with New York waters, but the, kind of the image, and correctly so, has been one of pollution and and the environment pretty much uh, disrupted in every, every way possible by humans ever since uh, you know Henry Hudson uh, came up the Hudson River. Um, so that has been a constant decline, but um, the environment is definitely improving. Um, this goes back to the 70s when uh, lots of very um, uh, corrective legislation was put into place with the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, uh, just a number of major legislative, the EPA, all those took place in the early 70s. And I think the results of that, along with lots of um, people that have been working hard as individual activists and, you know, groups of citizen scientists or, or small um, organizations have been working to just improve the quality of water that exists around New York. And I think the um, the efforts are beginning to pay off because we notice that the water is just visibly cleaner, uh, and in particular, the fish are coming back. There has never been uh, more menhaden in this area than than we see these last few years. When you think about it, like on the one hand, you think you know, like a major city like New York City, and it just the, the first thing that crosses your mind usually isn't humpback whales. Um, but then you're like, well, right, it's right there on the ocean. Why shouldn't they be there? Um, what kind of reactions do you get? I mean, I, I, I imagine, you know, you're, you're, you 
your friends know about this or, or neighbors, whoever else, I mean, how do people react to hearing about being able to go look at whales like right off of New York City? That, that's a great question because the first response is that they really don't believe you. Um, and, and they're skeptical at first. How could whales, seals, or any marine mammals be so close to such a large metropolis as New York City? And then, as you know, it becomes clear through either direct observation or through pictures, um, it becomes really exciting for people because there's something about having marine wildlife like that so close to such a large um, area of human population. It really is remarkable, and people just love it, and I'm one of them. So um, I'd like to thank our guests, um, as well as the musicians for our theme song, and everybody for listening. What's the name of that band, Tony? Uh, uh, Man Crusher? I Man believe. Crusher? Okay, cool. And um, I hope everybody tunes into our next podcast, or I don't know if tunes in or just types in, I guess you said. Types in is about right, um, or subscribes in. Yeah, and then hit us up for questions and comments on our Facebook page, tweet us, or um, you know, email us. And, oh, by the way, we should mention our website, urbanwildlifecast.com, where you can get links to the, to the Bangkok Herps website, to the Gotham Whale website, learn more about what we're talking about. And next episode, uh, we're going to hear about... <laughs> we're going to hear about uh, a, a, an, an insect sampling study in... Philadelphia using an old historic fountain. We'll hear about Kirtland snakes, uh, the coolest urban snake you've never heard of. And we'll hear about the flying squirrels of West Philly. Wildlife every day. <laughs> Rock on. <laughs>